day and um, God had, yeah, it was fun for the 65% of people who actually celebrate Valentine's Day, spend $18.9 billion on Valentine's Day, including $700 million on your pets. And we can, I think we consumed something like 58 million pounds of chocolate last week, which is awesome. And um, Ken got to see most of you over at Fleming's because it's the one time a year we can afford to go. Or we will take the time to go. So, last week God placed a message on my heart specifically for Valentine's Day. And then we had this wonderful band here um, that was awesome. It was really fun to get to, to... Yeah. And so I had about 10 minutes at the end there. And I'm like, there's absolutely no chance that I have even enough margin to try to even start t- talking about this. So we decided to postpone last week's message till this week. Um, because love is one of those things we've been talking a lot about over the last couple of months. We, we looked at the number one commandment. Somebody said, Jesus, what's the number one commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The two of those, the law and the prophets and everything else hinges on that, those two. We also, somebody, you know, Jesus said to his disciples, listen, the world will know you're my disciples by how? The way you love one another. Love is this central component to both our, our vertical relationship with God and then our horizontal relationship with one another. And even, in fact, for those of you who have been going to this uh, marriage enrichment class that started on Wednesday, and by the way, if you did not make Wednesday and you'd like to actually work on your marriage, it's not too late to come. Wednesday nights, 7 p.m. across the street, we've got childcare. It was awesome to begin to delve into how can we be working on our marriages? What are some of the ways we can strengthen it? And one of the things that Bill said, he said, the number one indicator that a marriage is in deep, deep trouble is a loss of love. And yet, what does that mean, a loss of love? Does that mean you've lost that love and feeling, right? Or or is there something deeper to it than that? And so as we've been kind of talking about love, I've realized that a lot of times what one person says and what another person hears are two very, very different things. It's like my wife, I go, hey, honey, I know I've been gone like the last three mornings, but the surf is up and Dee asks if I can go body surfing with him. Can I go? She goes, if you want to, right? (laughs) What she says and what I hear are two different things. She says, if you want to make me get up and take care of the children and get them ready for school by myself, go right ahead. And what I hear is, if you want to. (laughs) D, we're on, baby, right? So what is said and what is heard are often two different things, and especially with a word like love. Because love is one of those things that in the English language, we only have one word. And so it's asked to do a whole bunch of stuff. I love basketball and I love Jesus. I love sushi and I love my wife. We're asking the same word to carry a whole bunch of different meaning. The reality is I love Jesus and I love my wife and I love my children in a very different way than I love basketball, sushi, snacking, reading, whatever else it might be, right? And when we're asking a word to carry a lot of different meaning in a lot of ways, it becomes so diffuse that it really doesn't mean a whole lot unless we define our terms. Now, the nice thing is in the Greek language that the New Testament is written in, there's actually four words as opposed to one for love. And what I want to do this morning is I want to take just a couple of minutes to look at the different types of love that are used throughout Scripture so that we can begin to understand what we're meaning when we're talking about love. There's four words. The first one is eros. This is what I would call 
the Hollywood style love. Okay, love Hollywood style. This is the kind of love that you see in a romantic comedy where somebody falls head over heels for the bad guy, right? Like he's, he's not the guy from the PG-13 movie you're all really hoping is a good guy. He's like, that, he's that guy who's kind of dark and he's not very nice and yet the girl falls madly in love with him and at the very end they, it works out and they live happily ever after. Ha, ha, and then die. I'm not watching those movies. I mean, yeah, I understand like, what was it like any a sparks movie whatever you know like what was that one no, it doesn't matter okay yeah some of them they die and they live. but i found that after being married for 11 years happily ever after happily ever after is a lot of work right baby a lot of work but this is eros eros is romantic love it's the kind of love where you just want to possess that person completely have you ever felt so in love with somebody that you just you hug them and you just can't get close enough you almost kind of want to envelop them and it, that's eros it is a possessive type of my precious i don't want to share this person with anybody else the second type of love is storge this is that old familiar feeling it's the type of love that you have for something. You, you go to your parents' house and your mom makes you that food that you grew up eating, that comfort food. And it's like, oh, man, this just brings me back. And I love it because it's so familiar. It's the kind of love that Linus has for his blanket, right? Or one of your children has for their favorite stuffed animal that you were willing to drive an extra 60 miles back to the house that you had dinner at because you left it there and the kid will not go to sleep without it. It's the same type of, kind of love that I have for Sioux Plantation, which will cause me to drive past like dozens and dozens of other probably better restaurants, in your opinion, to go eat there. Because I love it. Because it's familiar. Because I know it. So Eros, romantic love. Storge, the kind of love you have for something that's familiar. Then you have Phileo, from which we get Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love this is brotherly love the kind of love you have for somebody whether they're related or not that you know them so well you've spent so much time you've got so many experiences together that you go this person is my brother or my sister we're family even if we don't share the same blood the beautiful part about jesus is we do in jesus christ we are all blood related but i'm in a room full of people that i consider my brothers and sisters that i don't have any relationship with beyond simply loving Jesus and loving one another, and we have experience together. That's phileo type of love. Now, all three of those, eros, storge, and phileo, have one major thing in common. They're all feelings. They're all things that happen naturally. You can't contrive them. You can't make yourself feel eros towards somebody. For some reason, one person we find ourselves drawn towards, attracted towards, in love with, might say an infatuation with we can't make ourselves feel comfort and and that storge kind of familiarity with everything there's only a couple of places that i really feel comfortable with i can't go to anybody's house and feel that kind of comfort but i go to my parents house that i grew up in it's like oh. and then we can't manufacture that kind of brotherly love where we go this person closer than a brother and yet, there, there's a fourth type of love. And this is the type of love that we see all throughout Scripture. And the distinction between the fourth type, which is agape, and eros, storge, and phileo, is it is less of an emotion 
and more of a decision. This is active love. It is a choice. And so we, we look at a couple of different passages here. John 3.16. We all know that one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That word love there is agape. For God so chose to love the world that he gave his one and only son. It wasn't a, a feeling so much. It was a decision. I love this world. I love these people whom I created in my image, and so I'm going to do everything that needs to be done. The same kind of idea is reiterated in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. You don't have to turn there. But we read that God demonstrates his own love, his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the thing about agape. Whereas eros, phileo, and storge are all dependent upon the worthiness of that thing. It's a feeling. In agape, it's a choice. So God chose to love us even when we were still sinning, even when we were still in open rebellion to him, even when we said, I want to be the captain of my own ship. And many of us still probably feel that way. I want to be the captain of my own ship. And yet, God said, even though you are in open rebellion to me, I love you enough that I will move towards you and do everything that needs to be done so that we can be reconciled to one another. Last one, and I would like you to turn here because this is where we're going to camp today. Go to 1 John chapter 4. It's right towards the end of your Bible. If you hit 2, 3 John or Revelation, you've gone too far. If you're in 1, 2 Peter, you haven't gone far enough. And the point that we're trying to get at here is that agape is very, very different than the other types of love that we tend to talk about. That romantic type of love, that familiar type of love, that brotherly type of love that just says, man, we have so much experience together that, yeah, we're, we're bros. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, John basically reiterates the same point we've seen in in other passages, this is how God showed his love amongst us. This is verse 9 of First John chapter 4. This is how God showed his agape love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is agape. Not that we chose to love God, but that he chose to love us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The beautiful thing about agape love that is different from every other type of love is that since it's a choice, it's actually something that you can be commanded to do. We can choose to love somebody and it's not contingent upon whether or not that thing is worthy of our love. We certainly aren't. We aren't deserving of God's grace. But that's what makes, that's the audacity of the gospel message that even though we were not worthy, God chose to love us, chose to move towards us, chose to send Jesus to die for us. And so the love that is described between our Father God in heaven and us is agape, not eros, storge, or phileo. Now, why does this matter? Because it's the foundation for everything. And I will be honest with you. Intellectually, I get that God loves me. There's nothing I did to earn it. There's nothing I could do to earn it. And so I don't have to perform for his pleasure. I get that up here. But it's difficult, that that 12 inches from my head to my heart, to actually rest in the knowledge 
that God loves me, not because I earned it, not because I'm good enough. Because I've been brought up in a world that's taught me that love is contingent upon worthiness. Not necessarily so much in my family, although there was some of that. Because it's difficult not to. I mean, I, I recognize that Kathy and I both know that we don't want to train our boys up to think that our love for them is contingent. But we tend to get mad at them when they disobey. And they interpret that as, I don't love you anymore. And so it's difficult not to give some idea that our love is contingent in growing up, someone in my family, but even more so in the books that I read, the movies I watched, the television shows I watched, ingrained into my mind that a person's lovableness or, or acceptability is completely contingent upon their worthiness. And I've gone through life with that mindset. And I think it's a mindset, if we track it all the way back, it's a mindset that we can find all the way in Genesis chapter 3. Because from the moment that Adam and Eve grabbed that fruit that God had said, don't touch it, and they took a bite, their eyes were open to their nakedness. Now, have they been naked prior to eating that fruit? Absolutely. But for the first time in their entire life, shame entered into their reality, entered into them. And when they looked at themselves, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed of themselves. The first thing that gets changed in Genesis chapter 3 is the man and woman's perception of themselves. Suddenly they go from acceptable to not acceptable. And they're ashamed of it, and so what do they do? They go into hiding from one another and from their God. They start grabbing into the closest thing they can find. They find fig leaves and they start slapping them all over to try to cover over their nakedness, to try to make themselves acceptable. And I find myself doing exactly the same thing. Some 6,000 years later, when I am confronted with my, I'm very well aware of my imperfection. And I'm ashamed of that. And I don't want anybody else to know about my imperfections. And so what do I do? I, being a people pleaser and a performer, go into performance mode. I start trying to present to them a facade of who Eric Wayman is. And in order to do that, I become a student of everybody around me. What do you want me to be? I'll be that. And like a chameleon that changes his color... I start changing myself. I start changing my my humor to match that group. I start changing my actions, right? When I'm at work, I'm Mr. Stoic, Eric. And when I'm around my friends, I'm silly and and, and inappropriate at times. (laughs) That sounded so much like my mom. (laughs) Seriously? Okay. That's funny. I become who I think other people want me to be so that they will give me their approval, so that they will love me. And so like a hamster on a wheel, I start to run. I become the social chameleon. And I run and I run and I run. I remember this early on, back when I was in grade school. I remember not being the cool kid in school. And there were other kids that, would, that the in crowd would start picking on and I would kind of saddle up next to the, the in crowd and kind of join them in joking about that kid because if they were picking on them, then at least they weren't pointing out how I didn't fit in. I remember walking through the, the commons in, um, in college. And I... I, I I would see my friend sitting at a bench and I would not make eye contact because I was hoping, hoping that they would go, Eric, what's up? Because then that would be an affirmation that they saw me. 
as opposed to going, hey guys, what's up? And moving towards them and actually being the one who initiated that. Because I was asking them, do you see me? Do I matter? I chose to go into college to become an attorney because my father was an attorney. And I had never thought about this until years later. But I was trying to follow my father in his footsteps because I not only wanted his approval, but I wanted his love. And I felt that in order to earn his love, I needed to somehow follow him into the family business. It was only a couple of years later when I realized I am not cut out for law that I finally had to wrestle with, why am I doing this? Why did I choose this? Why do I even want to do this? And I, and I recognized this need to try to prove my worthiness even as I stand on stage. As a pastor, I have had to wrestle with this need to try to prove I am worthy by my message, by what I say, trying to be profound, trying to change people's lives as if I can be Jesus to someone. And the reality is, it's an exhausting way to go through life trying to perform for other people's approval because you're really only as good as your last performance. And the, the fear is, if I build my identity off of how other people approach me, how other people view me, and through my performance then I had better never stop performing because the moment that I do, the moment I let my guard down, the the moment I stop trying to plaster on these fig leaves, one of them's going to peel away and people are going to realize that I, like the great and powerful Wizard of Oz, is not really so great and powerful as I purport myself to be. The moment they get a peek behind the curtain, they're going to realize this guy's kind of a fraud. And so I keep running and running and running. And it's exhausting. Now that's a performer. That's a, a people pleaser. But there are others of us who at the same kernel in our hearts feel imperfect, are aware of our inadequacies, are ashamed. And rather than going to performance, we go into despair. There's like a dark cloud that comes over us and we realize I'm never going to be acceptable. And depression, anxiety, and all of those other things can come alongside, and it's tied to the same core belief that I am imperfect, and if people saw my imperfection, they would consider me unacceptable, and they'd reject me. And we have pulled all of this, not only into our relationship with one another, but we've pulled it into our relationship with our Father God. And we've approached him as if his love for us is contingent upon our worthiness. And so some of us try to perform for his approval. Try to check all of the boxes. Go to church at least three out of four weeks of the month. Try to give at least seven and a half percent, you know, close to ten percent. Try to pray at most meals and all that kind of stuff. We try to do enough to make God love us and to be worthy of his love. And others of us just go, God, I suck. You you, you couldn't possibly use me because I know how much I've screwed up. And you know everything. You see all of it. So you probably see stuff that I don't even realize. But you must be disgusted with me. And so like a dog that's wounded, we kind of slink off into the bushes or under the, you know, under the porch to lick our wounds and to try to heal and and do it on our own. And only when we feel like we kind of have healed up enough do we kind of slink back into his presence, but we do so coweringly because we're afraid that he is going to be like this cosmic traffic cop. And I apologize, Richard Poli, for using this analogy, but like this cop who's looking down on us, just kind of shaking his head like a disappointed father. And the heart that we get from all of Scripture is this. That is the antithesis of how our father looks at us. 
because our identity with him has nothing to do with our worthiness. The best picture we get in scripture is that of the prodigal son. A kid who basically went to his father and said, I wish you were dead because I want my stuff. And his father goes, you think that's what you want here? Take it. And then he runs off and he blows it. And he finds himself covered in the muck of a pigsty, feeding the pigs and longing to eat their food. He's so hungry. And he goes, what am I doing? Look how far I've fallen. I've gone from being the son of my father to feeding pigs and covered in slop. And he finally scrapes together the courage to make that long, painful journey home. And rather than the father standing on the porch with his arms crossed, watching his son make that walk of shame, the father hitches up his robes in a most undignified manner and runs to his boy, throws his arms around him, and starts celebrating that his boy is home. And he doesn't make his boy go and clean himself up. He says, go bring my son a new robe. Go bring him new sandals. Go get him a ring. Put it on his finger. My boy is home. And he celebrates. And Jesus said, that's the heart your father has towards you. Not because you deserved it. Not because you're good enough. Not because you're a good enough performer that you've tricked him into thinking that you're worthy. Not because you're a good enough person that's done enough things to make him love you. No, God agapes you. He has chosen to love you irrespective of your worthiness. <laughs> it's interesting, I, just as an aside, yesterday morning, um, my boy, again, who we're, we're trying to train up in this, had an interesting conversation. Two nights ago, we were over at my parents' house. Something happened where it was way past their bedtime, and when that starts happening, think, it, it's not beautiful with young children. Something happened that, that Ethan was very sad and he started throwing a temper tantrum and he kind of overreacted to something. And we, being loving parents, tried to discipline him in that, but do so lovingly and just basically said, dude, you are overreacting right now. It's not a big deal. We got home, got him in bed. He wakes up in the morning. We know when our boys wake up because we, we sleep directly underneath their room and it's like elephants you know, just like boom, boom, boom. So we hear Ethan get out of bed. There's no question that it's Ethan because Grayson's more like a gremlin. And, and Ethan is like an elephant. Ethan gets out of bed. We're like, okay, count countdown. We've got 10 seconds before he comes bursting through our door. Nine, eight. But he never shows up. Instead, we start hearing water running in the kitchen. What's going on? Water goes on, water goes off. Water goes on, water goes off. This goes on for like five minutes. And Kathy and I are looking at one another like, should one of us go investigate? is he making water balloons? Maybe he's making pancakes, right? Or oatmeal. Like, he doesn't need that much water for that. And then it dawns on us. My seven-year-old is doing the dishes. This is awesome. <laughs> and then it dawns on us. Oh, crud. He's doing the dishes because of last night. My boy is trying to do something to make up for something he did. <laughs> The fact that he's doing something is totally fine. The reason why his motivation behind it broke my heart a little bit because I realized that my seven-year-old is caught up in that same cycle that I am caught up in. That cycle that says, if I screw up, I must do something to make up for it so that I will be acceptable again, even with my parents because my boy's not even secure in that. And so when he came down, the first thing we did is we affirmed him. Wow, did you just do the, you're, you were the man, Ethan. That is amazing that you did that. 
But then after a couple minutes, we go, okay, can I ask you a question, Ethan? Why did you do them? Because I wanted to. Okay. Did it have anything to do with last night? Yeah. And that started a deeper conversation with our boy where Kathy and I were both able to reiterate, listen, buddy, do you realize how much we love you? There is no limit to that. Just because you overreact, just like I overreact sometimes and your mommy overreacts, just because you do that does not change the fact that you're our boy and we love you more than you could ever possibly fathom. And you don't have to try to make up for that. We love you. And we just, for a while, we just tried to kind of hammer that point home because it is the human condition to feel like when we've screwed up, we have to try to make up for it. And here's the point that I'm trying to drive at this morning. There is no prerequisite for our Father's love. Yes, we live in a a broken world around broken people, and love, unfortunately, in our society tends to be contingent upon our worthiness and our actions and all those kind of things. But when it comes to our Father God, there is no prerequisite for His love. However, there's a very natural response to it. Let me show you what I mean. Go back here to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to begin... I'm just going to look at that very last part of verse 8, and we're going to keep going. We read that in verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. That's right, Alice. God is love. And this is how God showed his agape love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is agape love. Not that we chose to love God, but that he chose to love us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. While we were still in rebellion, he sent Jesus for us. Now here is the response. Because there was nothing that we did to earn that. But there is a very natural response. Verse 11, dear friends, since God has chosen to love us in this way, we also ought to choose to love one another. We must choose to love. No one, no one else has ever seen God. But if we choose to love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. When? When we can begin to rest in, our, in God's love, when we can begin to find our identity, not through what we do, not through our accomplishments, not through how long it's been since we stumbled into sin, not when we start counting up all of the good things versus all the bad things in a day and saying, have I, had, have I been a good boy or a good girl today? When we stop playing that game that our value is contingent upon our efforts and our actions and start resting in the fact that we are loved, irrespective of our worthiness, then we can begin to love other people in a different way. Then, I, then when we can rest in, I am loved by God. So when I'm walking through the, the school and I see my friends over there, I don't need to go, I wonder if they're going to notice me, so that will be an affirmation that I matter. I can go, hey, how are you? I can move towards the people that are feeling alone and lonely and isolated as well. I can be an agent of hope and reconciliation in a world that desperately needs it. When we are able to rest in our identities as sons and daughters of God, when we are able to rest in his unconditional love for us, then we get to be conduits of that love for other people. Now, I was going to have my wife come up and share a story of what that looked like in our own lives. It happened about a decade ago. But she doesn't love doing that. 
And instead, she showed me a video this week that so powerfully illustrated it that I'm like, you know what, baby, you're off the hook. I'm going to show that. So, so this is Kathy's investment into this without having her come up. So can we go ahead and show that video? This is, before you show it, stop just a moment. Before you show this, this is a clip taken from TNT during a halftime of a basketball game. And they're talking about a guy who is the assistant coach for uh, an NBA basketball team whose wife died about a week and a half ago in a head-on collision with another woman. The other woman was driving an SUV and she veered across the road, slammed into this man's wife's car, and both of them were killed. And what they're about to show is a video from her memorial service when the husband, Monty, um, comes up and, and shares some thoughts. And what I w- hope you will see, well, I'm not even going to say it. Go ahead and show it. Where uh, memorial service was held for Ingrid Williams, uh, the <coughs> wife of Monty Williams, who was an Oklahoma City mm-hmm. assistant coach and had obviously ties to the San Antonio Spurs. Um, she died last week in a head-on accident uh, when a woman crossed the center line and hit her and they had five kids and uh, you talk you heard about uh, how powerful Monty Williams was um, when he spoke today and so we felt it would be appropriate uh, rather than talking hoops in this segment just to give you a piece of what uh, Monty Williams had to say in the wake of uh, just unspeakable tragedy This is hard for my family, but this will work out. And my wife would punch me if I were to sit up here and whine about what's going on. That doesn't take away the pain. But it will work out because God causes all things to work out. You just can't quit. You can't give in. See, the Bible says Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And America teaches us to just numb that, and it's not true, but it is true. All you got to do is look around you. Get outside of these walls, and you know it's true. This will work out. Doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't mean it's not painful. Doesn't mean we don't have tough times, and we're going to have tough times. What we need is the Lord. And that's what my wife tried to exhibit every single day. I'm going to close with this, and I think it's the most important thing that we need to understand. Everybody's praying for me and my family, which is right. But let us not forget that there were two people in this situation. And that family needs prayer as well. And we have no ill will towards that family. In my house, we have a sign that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We cannot serve the Lord if we don't have a heart of forgiveness. That family didn't wake up wanting to hurt my wife. Life is hard. It is very hard. And that was tough. But we hold no ill will towards the Donaldson family. And we, as a group, brothers united in unity, should be praying for that family because they grieve as well. So let's not lose sight of what's important. God will work this out. My wife is in heaven. God loves us. God is love. And when we walk away from this place today, let's celebrate. Because my wife is where we all need to be. And I'm envious of that. But I got five crumb snatchers I got to deal with. I love you guys. 
for taking time out of your day to celebrate my wife. We didn't lose her. When you lose something, you can't find it. I know exactly where my wife is. I'll miss holding her hand. I'll miss talking with my wife. Um, Sam and Coach Donovan probably couldn't figure out why I always wanted to get out of the office, uh, me and Mo Cheeks. Um, Mo probably wanted to go do something else. But we always wanted to get out of the office. I just enjoy being with my wife. I enjoy being with my family. And most of the times we didn't do anything. We'd just be at the house sitting around um, doing nothing. I'm going to miss that. Let's not lose sight of what's important. God is important. What Christ did on the cross is important. Let's not lose sight of that family that also lost someone that they love. I love you guys. I hope I get a chance to hug and shake a hand and give a kiss on the cheek. But let's keep what's important at the forefront. Thank you. I love the fact that that was shown on primetime television. Jesus Christ's name was proclaimed. And this man who experienced unspeakable tragedy, because let's not forget the fact that he is left with a broken family, a wife that he loves tremendously. And I love, love that mindset that, listen, she's not lost. What's lost, you don't know where to find it. I know exactly where she's at. And that's the hope we have in Christ. That this world doesn't get the last word. That, that seemingly meaningless tragedy doesn't get the last word. That the pain and brokenness that we encounter does not get the last word. But what I love about this is he recognized that it went beyond that. He could rest in the peace that he knows where his wife is. He knows in whose hands he and his entire family are. And out of that, he has the strength to stand up there and say, listen, I hold no ill will towards this family that are also grieving. Let us not forget that they too need prayer. When we can rest in God's love, then we can be conduits of that love as well. We can begin to look beyond ourselves and recognize, I don't need somebody else to tell me I'm okay. I can move towards them and love them with the love that Christ pours into me. That can only happen when we rest in his love. But what an amazingly powerful declaration that can be for somebody who truly gets it. So a couple of things as I'm, as I'm going to wrap this up. First off, for those of you who go, okay, well, how can I move beyond the walls of this church and actually begin to love my neighbors? I'm really glad you asked. And it's good timing that this Thursday night at 645 over at a church down the street is this love my, Know My Neighbor and Love My Neighbor training event that's, that's open to every church in the area. There's going, to be something, there's going to be dozens of churches that will be represented as the people here in Costa Mesa come together to go, how can we be more intentional as a church family, not just Lighthouse Church, but as a church family, how can we be more intentional about loving our neighbors? If you're interested in that, I know that I'm going to be trying to go to that. There's a number of people here who do. This flyer is at the back table back there. Grab one of these. I invite you to come and join us at that. Secondly, my coach always used to say, what you do in practice, you're going to do in a game. It's that whole muscle memory thing, right? So in order for us to have an opportunity to practice, I've printed up some love dares. There's these little slips of paper that are, there's a couple of t uh, bowls of them at that back table and one over at the women's table as well. This is a love there that basically gives you an opportunity to go, okay, God, help me 
to, you know, find an opportunity to do this today. On the front is a love dare. That's kind of like if you're a skier, that's like your, your bunny slope kind of thing, just kind of ease you into this. And then on the back is a double dare. There's even one with a triple dog dare on there. Yeah, come on. Don't go search it. There's 14 of these different cards. So you can grab a couple, take them with you, stick them in your Bible, and just go, okay, God, open my eyes to these opportunities so that we can practice loving our neighbor. Okay? Those are in the back. Last thing. It's one thing to love. It's another thing to rest in that love because that's ultimately the foundation, right? We can't pour God's love out of us if we don't have it pouring into us. And God gives freely of that, but it's very difficult when we are caught in that mindset that I have to prove my worthiness. It's really difficult to accept it and receive it and rest in it and then be a conduit for it. And my guess is that there are a number of us in here this morning who find that you, like Adam and Eve, like myself, have been caught on this hamster wheel of performance and perfectionism and trying to earn other people's approval, or you've just kind of given up altogether and go, man, I am a mess, and there is no way that God could possibly use me. You're caught in this cycle of being so hyper-focused on your shame and your brokenness and your imperfection that you can't rest in God's perfect love. I, I, I called this message perfect love, and, and, and there's a verse attached to it. Perfect love drives out fear. But we often think that it's our perfect love, right? The love that we have will drive out that fear, and that's not true whatsoever because none of us will ever be able to perfectly love. I can't perfectly love my children. I cannot perfectly love my wife this side of the grave. The perfect love we're talking about is our Father's perfect love for us. And that drives out a fear that we need to somehow do something to earn it. And if you find, like me, that you're struggling to rest in God's perfect love, I would ask you right now to take a courageous step and just stand up. If you are struggling to rest in God's perfect love for you, I'm preaching on this stuff and I'm also standing because I recognize that our flesh has a hard time dying. Okay, here's what we're going to do. If you're not standing, I invite you to stand next to somebody who is and put a hand on them. And I'm simply going to pray for us in closing this morning. All right. Father God, I thank you that we can call you our father, our daddy, our Abba. That we don't have to come, you, to come before you with fear and trembling, terrified that you're going to, to punish us. But more in the recognition that you love us more than we could ever possibly fathom. And it is a perfect, unerring love. You know us better than we know ourselves and yet you choose us. And you move towards us and you say, I just want to be reconciled to you. I just want to do life with you. And Father, we recognize that we're imperfect. And so we as imperfect sons and daughters of yours just say, thank you for loving us, God. Thank you for accepting us just as we are. And would you help us to rest in that? 
to stop trying to prove our worth and to stop trying to earn it, to stop trying to, to stop giving the enemy a foothold when he comes in and begins to, to tell us that we're screw-ups and we're rejects and that we're unlovable. Father God, we ask that you would help us to truly rest in your love so that we can then begin to pour that out into our families with our our spouses, our children, our friends, our neighbors, people in our workplace or at our schools. Holy Spirit, we need you to go to battle against the enemy who prowls around looking to steal our joy, kill our hope, and destroy our faith, destroy our identities. Help us to rest in the knowledge that we are your sons and daughters, washed and cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ, not because we earned it, but because you chose to send him to die for us. And we are loved. And we are enough. Because you are in us and you have made us enough. And now we ask that you would fill us up with your love so that we can be conduits of that hope in a world that so desperately needs it that we can be comforters in a world full of broken, hurting people that so desperately need comfort. Fill us up and send us out for your name's sake. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a wonderful week.